Welcome back to the Working Out the Inside podcast. I'm Andrew Nargawala of Advanced Psychotherapy and Healing Associates in Creskill, New Jersey. This is Episode 17, Mass Shootings and Mental Health. Some of the questions we are going to address today include, are mass shooters mentally ill? Is it possible to predict when a mass murder such as the one in El Paso will occur? And can we stop it from happening? Why does America have many times more mass killings than any other nation? Could psychotherapy before such an incident help prevent future victims? And what are the dangers of diagnosing someone at a distance? The horrible mass murders in Dayton and El Paso that have dominated the news have brought out our deepest sympathy and empathy for the victims and caused us to ask many questions of ourselves as a society. One of the questions I hear often is, how can anyone who would do such a thing not be mentally ill? It's a very understandable question. First, let's define what we mean by mentally ill. There are two main categories, AMI, any mental illness, and SMI, serious mental illness. Any mental illness is a very, very broad category, any kind of mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder, and the kind of impact it has can range from no impact, no impairment, to mild, moderate, even severe impairment. So it's incredibly broad. Serious mental illness is defined as a mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder resulting in serious functional impairment. It very much interferes with that person's major life activities. And these illnesses, the severe mental illness, include disorders that produce psychotic symptoms, or can in include that, such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and severe forms of other disorders, such as major depression and bipolar disorder. Uh, these last few ones often produce distortions of perception, delusions, hallucinations, uh, and they're often called thought disorders. Uh, because the symptoms reflect a loss of contact with perceived reality, the disorders are often sometimes known as psychotic disorders. Essentially, when you hear professionals talking about mental illness or severe mental illness, they're generally talking about these kind of psychotic disorders or thought disorders that often have a biological component, not just psychological conditions. Uh, because the AMI category is just too broad. And also the SMI category emphasizes that in most of those cases, there's some kind of genetic uh, or biological component uh, that we don't fully understand. We can treat, but unfortunately we don't know yet uh, the cause. The El Paso murderer drove 10 miles to the location where he thought Mexicans would be. When he was caught, he immediately admitted he was the shooter. He calmly told the police what he had done and how he used an AK-47 and several magazines of ammunition to carry out the crime. He had posted a racist manifesto online before the killings. 
Contrary to the lone wolf scenario, he felt a kinship with other mass murderers and their racist manifestos, and he felt he was advancing their cause by doing what he did. He even advised other potential killers how to approach their targets and wrote that he felt honored to participate in his cause. He told uh, in the um, manifesto about uh, that others who would follow in his footsteps should avoid areas where they could be caught, where there was heavy police presence. Uh, what he did was absolutely horrendous, profoundly destructive, but it was driven by hate and ideology, not mental illness. Racism is a belief. People can choose whether to believe it or not. Anger and hatred are feelings, states of mind, but not psychosis. There absolutely can be crimes that are motivated by psychosis, but those are a very small percentage, approximately 4%. If the El Paso killer had been motivated by voices in his head, delusions, hallucinations, then we could say that mental illness played a role, but there's no evidence of this. In fact, the truly mentally ill are much more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. It's a very vulnerable population that often does not get the help that they deserve. For those with a bipolar disorder, for example, their risk of violence only goes up if they're also abusing substances, something that could raise the risk of violent behavior for the general population as well. In fact, mentally ill people who don't have substance abuse issues, who weren't maltreated as children, and who don't, don't live in adverse environments have a lower risk than the general population of violence. Other countries have mentally ill people, as well as violent video games, another commonly cited source of blame. But no other country on earth has the same problem with mass shootings that America has. What sets us apart is the incredibly easy access to guns, including assault rifles and high-capacity magazines of ammunition. The El Paso killer said that, in contrast to the, the work he put into his hate-filled racist ideology and manifesto, he didn't take a lot of time in preparing the means of his crime. He knew how easy it is to get weapons of mass murder in this country. As we have discussed in other episodes of this podcast, there is still a stigma to mental illness in this country. Most mentally ill people are suffering themselves, not causing pain to others. When we label mass shootings as due to mental illness, it only further stigmatizes many innocent people who deserve help. Mental illness is a convenient scapegoat to distract us from the avail availability of firearms and the toll this takes on our children and ourselves. Another way that the mentally ill and the process of getting help or stigmatized is the diagnosing of people at a distance, meaning professionals saying in the media that political or entertainment figures have mental health conditions without having examined that figure in person or obtaining that person's consent. Psychiatrists have what is informally called the Goldwater Rule that prohibits this, and psychologists have a similar 
directive against doing this. The name stems from an incident when a magazine published the opinion of many psychiatrists at the time that Barry Goldwater, a Republican candidate for president, was not fit to hold the office. None of them had examined him or obtained consent from him to discuss this, and he sued the magazine and he won. Now we see professionals from very well-known institutions doing the same thing with the current president. In general, when we label behavior attitudes we don't like as crazy, it is very likely inac inaccurate and is damaging to those who are seeking legitimate help. When we associate negatives with mental illness, it presents a distorted view of those who are truly suffering, who are often very loving, good people who were born with conditions such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder that they had nothing to do with. Many traits such as selfishness, instability, bigotry, and impulsiveness are negative, yes. But the idea of handing out diagnoses based on these with no overall assessment is dangerous and destructive. Diagnosing someone effectively is a process over time, from initial impression to long-term observation. SNAP diagnosis also lets people off the hook. If these traits were really the product of mental illness, then one could argue that these people should not be held accountable for their actions. I recently was involved in a case where a young teen client was acting out by constantly lying and by making prejudiced comments to other kids and to staff at his school. Medication and therapy, therapy helped regulate his mood somewhat, but the behavior continued. Some who knew of his behavior, including another professional, but weren't directly involved in his treatment, called him psychotic, as if his behavior was inherent and essentially incurable. Long story short, with individual and family therapy, plus a supportive therapeutic school environment, the patient stopped the lying and the prejudice acting out, and additional progress was reported at school and at home. He had it within his power to change, and he did over time. For others who actually have biologically-based mental illness, a diagnosis properly done can be a blessing because it opens up the possibilities of helpful treatment. This leaves us with the questions of can violent behavior be predicted and can psychotherapy help someone before or after these horrible incidents? Violent behavior is extremely difficult to predict. A past history of violence is an indicator but this doesn't help if the violent episodes have never been reported to the police or if this is the perpetrator's first time acting out. Access to firearms and a history of substance abuse are risk factors, but these are very broad categories, especially in our culture. If we had universal health insurance coverage like every other developed country on the planet, people would be able to access treatment much more easily. And it's possible that some of the anger and hatred, including self-hatred, could be addressed. But many people don't believe they need help. People like the El Paso killer believe their actions are part of a bigger just cause. Universal coverage would make psychotherapy 
particularly trauma work available to the many survivors of such mass tragedies. To lose a loved one or to witness such an event is a deep emotional wound that psychotherapy, individual or group, could help. Regarding people in despair, in, in 2016, nearly 60% of all firearms deaths were suicides. And the youth suicide rate is higher in households where there is a gun. If we're ever going to stop or even slow the horrific rate of gun violence, we have to understand its true source, which is access to weapons, particularly assault weapons. Blaming mental illness is a convenient diversion, but completely misguided. Thank you so much for joining me today. I welcome your suggestions as to future episodes. In addition, you can leave a like or comment, subscribe to the podcast, and write to me at amn219 at nyu.edu. Until next time.